So this morning we are uh, we're going to finish 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Next week we're going to go back to the Gospel of John. We pick up in chapter 12, kind of the, the natural break point that we hit back in the spring from John 11 to 12, which really moves from the, the public ministry of Jesus Christ that we have focused on through those first 11 chapters to now a ministry that is primarily geared toward his uh, disciples in those closing days, and then the death and resurrection of Christ. So we will resume in John 12 next week if you want to begin to read ahead. We'll pause the following week. Bob Dlon, who is one of our missionaries we support through the consortium, will be here. Bob is actively engaged in training pastors and um, just does a wonderful ministry, and we're looking forward to him bringing the word on the 16th, and then we'll get back again to the Gospel of John. But this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5 this week, one of the places it made me think of elsewhere in Scripture was Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah records this breathtaking vision. He is in the presence of God. The angels are declaring to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah is, is taking this in and the foundations are shaking, it says, and the temple is, is filling with smoke. And it is this remarkable scene that, that gives him a glimpse of the power and the perfection of God, that what is just breathtaking to Isaiah is, is he is getting a sense for the majesty of God and even the, the distinction between the creator and the created, the fact that the creator certainly loves and has made the creation, but the creator is unique and he is seeing God, at least what he can see of him in, in his sinlessness and perfection. And Isaiah is in awe of what he sees and the first thing that comes out of his mouth as he experiences this scene is, woe is me, for I am ruined. There is this sense of his sinfulness, this vast difference between God and he. God is sinless and holy and perfect in all his ways, and Isaiah knows he is anything but sinless. And in fact, he goes on then to say, I am a man of unclean lips. I am living amongst a people of unclean lips. It's clear that what strikes Isaiah at that moment is, I'm a sinner. And the things that I say reflect that I'm a sinner. They, they pour forth the things that are in my heart. And I'm surrounded by sinners. We are a sinful people. And here I am now seeing the presence of God and the experience is one of feeling ruined. There are many Christians who have experiences, similar kinds of experiences in the sense of, of feeling inadequate, in that sense of beginning to ponder the greatness and majesty and holiness of God and then seeing our own lives and, and feeling so undeserving, seeing perhaps the word preached and hearing it or seeing a mature godly believer in, in, in their walk or reading something in scripture and suddenly it's like this mirror that reflects and, and what we see causes us to, to feel like we just fall so dramatically short of what we see. We know our sin and, and, and we are distressed by the fact that, that we can read God's word and see what it says to do and turn around only moments later and raise our voices and, and be sinning doing exactly the opposite of what we've just read in God's Word. The beauty is Isaiah's story didn't end there. 
God touches Isaiah's lips and he removes his sin and he purifies him and he commissions Isaiah into ministry. That is the remarkable work of God, that he reveals himself to broken people, that he calls sinful people to repent and come to him, people who struggle with weakness and inadequacy, and and calls them to himself to believe in him. And by his grace, he saves them and uses them, even though we don't magically become perfect we're not suddenly transformed at salvation and it's all put away and we've, we've got it all figured out. We still struggle with temptation. We're still in the flesh. We still face weakness and yet God works mightily. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to look at the last few verses of 1 Thessalonians 5. If you have ever struggled with those sorts of feelings of inadequacy, if you've ever been bothered by thoughts of how could God possibly use me in service in some way, then Paul's final words in this letter, this first letter to the young church at Thessalonica are for you. They are for all of us. They are meant to encourage us and to speak to us of God's word, assuring us that the sovereign God who created us and who has saved us for his purposes is actively at work in you, changing you and transforming you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. This is Paul's way of encouraging the Thessalonians with the hope that they have in Christ and telling them God will not fail. He saved you. And his purpose in you is ultimately not only to call you and to redeem you, but to bring you into his glory as fully glorified, and he will not fail in that. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, then you can know for certain that God will not fail to fully transform you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. Picking up in verse 23, I'm just going to read the whole section and then we'll kind of walk through it. Verse 23 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Now... May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. How many of you paused and said, I want to hear about this holy kiss part in there, right? That's sort of the curiosity in all of this. We'll get to it. I want to take these last few verses first, and I want to come back to 23 and 24 as sort of the main thrust. But let's just walk through the, 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 these closing words, verse, verse 25, where Paul asks for prayer. Here is Paul speaking to the young believers in the church at Thessalonica, and he is urging them, please pray for us. Pray for me and Timothy and Silas and for my partners in ministry. Paul has throughout 1 Thessalonians demonstrated his praying for them. He has reminded them repeatedly of this is how we pray for you, and he has prayed for them in the course of writing this letter. In chapters 1 and 2, he is encouraging them in several places of how he thanks God 
for what God has done in their midst, how he is growing them in grace and hope and faith, how they received God's word. He is thanking God for making them willing recipients of the word of God, people who responded to it and saw it for what it is as the word of God. And so he is recording in those first couple of chapters, this is how I thank God for you and I pray for you and I do it often. This is how I am thanking him for his work in you. In chapter 3, he is talking about how he is pleading with God, give me a way back to Thessalonica. I want to be with these people, and I'm praying and asking for God to, to give me that way. And he also says, in the meantime, I am praying that God would grow you in love for one another, that God would, would nurture in you his love and that it would continue to grow. Then he takes chapters 4 and 5 and devotes most of it to, to practical instruction. We've looked at this already, what it looks like for a believer in Jesus Christ to live in a way that pleases God. And it is at the end of those instructions, this is how you ought to walk. This is what sanctification looks like. The, the capstone of, of those instructions is the prayer of verses 23 and 24. And we'll, we'll see that and how that all fits together and how that is the, the appropriate closing prayer. But in verse 25, he is now saying to the young church at Thessalonica, please pray for us. This is just a, a reminder to us that Paul was not above seeking prayer from people who were new to faith, people that he had led to faith in Christ. He was not without need of prayer. Apostles were not superheroes who showed no signs of weakness. He, in fact, is urging them to pray for those in ministry with him and for himself. The Thessalonians are not beneath such a privilege. He does not look at them as sort of, yeah, they're just sort of the young group, the, the young believers, and they, they would hardly know how to pray at this point. No, he is urging them to pray for him. There is this desire that they do that. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. They have the same access to God through Christ that Paul has. There's nothing unique about Paul's place. They are all together, as he's going to emphasize again and again here, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it is wholly appropriate for him to say, please pray for us. Ask God to help us. Ask God to make our ministry effective. Ask God to work through us. We are a needy people. Wherever we are at in our walk with Christ, for however long you have walked with Christ, you need people praying for you. You, you need to be humble to ask for prayer and to seek prayer from brothers and sisters in Christ. This, is, this brethren pray for us is present tense. This is continuous. This isn't just, hey, by the way, when you finish this letter, throw up a, a quick prayer for us. This is Paul saying, brothers, I want you on an ongoing basis to be praying for us. Just like I said before, to always pray and to unceasingly give thanks. I want you to keep thinking about us and keep praying for us because we need it. We need you to pray for us. God has ordained intercession, praying for one another as a means by which he pours out his grace and strength and wisdom into our lives. So here is your application of this this morning. I'm going to give you a very practical application. If you have a bulletin, in that bulletin you have sermon notes. And in those sermon notes you may have seen a 3 by 5 card and you thought, what is this 3 by 5 card for? Here it is. And if you don't have it, there's more out at the welcome station. I would love for you to take it, put your name on it, and just put 
a couple of prayer requests, just a couple of things for God to give you wisdom, for God to give you strength in, in standing against temptation, for God to give you peace or patience or whatever it might be. Jot that down with your name and find someone that you have not asked before to pray for you and hand them that card before you leave this morning and say, would you please pray for me this week? And if you take that card, please do commit to pray for that person this week. So I don't, I don't want you, it's not that Pastor Stuart and I, we, all, we do pray and we do pray for the cards. I don't want you to come to the door and hand them all to us at the door. I want you to look around and say, I'm just going to give this card to, to this brother or sister in Christ and say, please, brother, pray for me. Think about me this week and pray for me, and here's what I, I need you to pray for. Would you do that? Uh, that's, that's the encouragement. That's the application. Short and sweet. Take a moment. You can do it while we're looking through this, or you can do it afterwards and fill that out. Verse 26, then. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. So what is this? What does this mean? It is really quite simply a greeting that befits family members. It is, it is what family does. It is just carrying on this emphasis that we have seen repeatedly in 1 Thessalonians where he constantly refers to them as brothers, speaking in the, the larger sense really by application of brothers and sisters. We are a family. And one commentator who studied this holy kiss as Paul uses it here um, and, and, and looked into the practice and other writings says that there, there seems to be no indication that this was practiced Prior to this in the local churches, this was something that really Paul introduced to his churches. It makes sense if we consider that Paul has suffered, he has faced persecution, and he has sought repeatedly to teach his people that you have some great bond in Christ. You, you have family that even when your own family disowns you for your faith in Christ, even when you are persecuted for your faith in Christ, what you have as brothers and sisters in Christ is entirely unique. It is the closest of families. And so he has repeatedly spoken about this bond that they share, what it is they have as brothers and sisters. And so this is simply an application of that. You belong to one another, therefore love each other as family. And the holy kiss was a, a tangible way to show affection. In fact, Paul even makes the point here in verse 26 when he says, greet all the brothers. Don't leave some out. Not even those that were being admonished as unruly who still professed faith in Christ. Don't be selective in who you show affection to. If they are your brother or sister in Christ, they profess Jesus Christ as Savior, then love them. Show affection to them. Greet them. Uh, this could also, the fact that he says, uh, greet all the brothers, also point to the fact that this was beyond that local body of believers. We know that Thessalonica was this major crossroad city that many believers from around Macedonia would one way or another pass through Thessalonica. And so as the believers there came to know believers from other regions, even then, the idea was these are not strangers to you. Yes, you, you may be getting just to know them for the first time, but if they call Jesus Christ Savior and Lord, then they are your family. Show them that affection. Love them as is fitting. 
A holy kiss was an appropriate way to communicate family love, and it was indeed holy. Indications from the early church fathers are that this was a practice that was a greeting between men or between women, and that it didn't cross lines between men and women. So when we talk about this holy kiss, this was indeed men greeting men, women greeting women. There was nothing inappropriate about it, and our greeting should never devolve into something that is less than holy. This is the affectionate love of a brother, of a sister, of family members. So the application of this for us culturally could be a kiss, it could be a hug, it could be a warm handshake. I'm not trying to sort of minimize it or water it down. What he's looking at is what is the the culturally appropriate way of family members greeting one another. And so as you would greet your brother or sister, so greet your brother and sister in Christ. So show that same sort of warmth that is appropriate to them. Verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. By the way, I didn't have the specific application on the last one. I'll let you work that one out and seek to apply that. I think you can. So now he says, I'm putting you under oath. As followers of Jesus Christ, here is the charge. Church at Thessalonica would get the original copy of this letter. Whoever was the the, the messenger who would bring it would bring that letter. It would not be easy for them to distribute copies. It would be a, a, a chore to begin to make copies. We know they did. Obviously, that's how the New Testament gets passed down to us, but it would take time. There was also a fairly high enough sense of illiteracy that some would not be able to read those and would need it proclaimed, read. And so Paul is emphasizing to those who receive it, presumably the leaders in that local church in Thessalonica, it is your responsibility to make sure that all of the brethren who profess faith in Christ are hearing the contents of this letter. Read it to them. Just as you greet all who profess faith in Christ, so you are to ensure that you read this, that there is no limitation to the Word of God, that it is not kept in the hands of just the leadership, and the leadership picks and chooses what it is it's going to teach to to the, the flock. It is, you read this letter to all of the brothers. Let them hear the word of the Lord. And then finally he says, verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It is regrettably easy for us to take these sort of statements in Paul's letters and see them as little more than Paul writing sincerely, Paul, or in Christ, Paul, because it's the way he ordinarily ends his letters. May the God of peace or the grace of our Lord be with you. Yet we know that our salvation, our growth in Christ, our hope for eternity, all rests entirely on the grace of God. We are not to take this lightly. He is is ministering to them and, and wanting them to know the grace of God that they have in Christ Jesus, the fact that God has been so generous to them. Paul's opening words in this letter, as in most of his letters, were grace to you. He loved to see God's people lavished with God's grace, and he wanted God's people to recognize that they were being lavished with God's grace. That's the part where we tend to mess it up, is that we tend to sort of take things for granted and not pause and recognize God's grace that is ministering to us moment by moment and sustaining us and enabling us and strengthening us. And so that's why Paul just does these reminders to them. It is the grace of God that you need. You may think you need all sorts of things in life, a better job, more money, 
whatever it is, and, and, and what the Word of God says is you need God's grace first and foremost. You need His sufficient grace. See that. See Him at work in that. And Paul is saying, may you experience it, may you know it, may you give thanks for it. And so he closes the letter just as he begins the letter, reminding them that in Christ, they are the recipients of God's grace, and God's grace is sufficient. And so he says it one more time here right at the end, that may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It, it is enough. It's an appropriate reminder at the end for what he said back in 23 and 24, and that's where I just want to spend the rest of our time this morning. Verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Put this, this prayer, this short prayer, may God sanctify you, may he keep you, he is faithful, he will do it. Put it in its context now. We, we do this in sections over courses of weeks, and sometimes we don't get the whole flow that you do when you sit down and read the whole letter. So think back now to the beginning of chapter 4 when he says, I know that you are walking in a God-pleasing way, now do it more and more. I want you to grow in pleasing God. Therefore, now think about this, from chapter 4 down through chapter 5, what we have seen so far. Therefore, abstain from sexual immorality. Always pursue purity and holiness. Love others more deeply. Mind your own affairs and work hard. Await the return of Christ and encourage one another all the more until that day. Keep alert and sober. Respect and esteem those who lead you. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with all. Don't repay evil for evil. Always look to say and do that which is good, that benefits one another for their profit. Always rejoice, unceasingly pray, in everything give thanks. Listen to God's word, embrace it, test all of life by God's word, holding fast to that which is good and running from that which is evil. When you come to the end of that list, like we've read it just there, right? You got it, Doug. Yes, you go, whew, that, that's just... That, that's a long, thorough, wonderful list that calls to us. But it's also, it, it's tempting at the end of that list to go, I can pick out point after point at which I struggle, at which I've, I failed this week. And, and it's one of those that just makes you feel, tempts you to feel overwhelmed. And that's why you don't stop at the end of verse 22. Even though we did last week and we ended at verse 22 and we're picking it up here, we don't stop there in our reading. Don't stop without reading the rest of it because in verses 23 and 24, therein lies the hope. For all that precedes it, that seems overwhelming at times, that is a wonderful list of what the will of God is. Don't mean to minimize that at all. If at any point you are stumped and wondering what is God's will, go back and read 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and see if you're, you're doing those things. That's God's will right there for you. Follow that. But then follow it through. Because what Paul says here is, now I'm praying that God will do this in you. I'm not leaving you with a list and saying, here's your to-do list get it done, here's your chore list, I want it all finished. It is God saying, here's what I call you to as people who, who strive to please me, and now know that I am with you. 
and I am strengthening you, and I am completing this work in you, and I am not abandoning you at any point in this walk. In fact, I am assuring you that you will finish the race, and you will complete this. And so he ends with these two petitions, two prayers, if you will, one for sanctification, one for preservation, and then this promise that God is faithful. Remember, this is it's what Stuart said earlier about the, the, the Sunday night prayer time. One of the reasons that we're trying to emphasize prayer is because we, we pray because we want, there, there, there's things we know, we, we can't do this. This is God's word. And so we pray humbly. This is, so this is not Paul saying, God, make the Thessalonians do these things. This is not Paul praying and saying, God, I hope the Thessalonians get this right. I've worked really hard on this letter and I've given them all these instructions and now I'm just hoping that they get it. We pray because we believe that this is a work that only God can do. And so the, the essence of this prayer here is appealing to God. I know, God, that what I have given to this group of people who are new to faith, who are young believers, who are living in a culture that is fully against them, who have opposition from Satan and, and, and his cohorts, that there is all sorts of adversarial effect against them. And I know that what I've just told them to do, what I believe is your will for them, would be utterly impossible unless you work in them, unless you are their strength and their grace and their power. And so he is pleading with God to provide sufficient strength and grace and wisdom. That first prayer is, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. If you think back to the beginning of this section, chapter 4, verse 3, sanctification is God's will for you. He had already told us that. What is the will of God? It is that you be holy, that you be set apart from sin, that you pursue a life that looks like Christ, that abstains from evil. And so he wills that we be holy, that we turn from sin and that we love righteousness and pursue what he says is good. That's his will for us. Yet, we cannot do that. Apart from this, in verse 23, is now God, the God of peace, sanctify them. God, change them. Change the desires in their heart. They are still people of flesh, and there is still lure and temptation out there in the world. There's still the temptation to react in anger. There's still the temptation to resort to lust. There's still the temptation to be discouraged. God, change them. Sanctify them. Transform them into the image of Christ. Richard Phillips writes, while the best of Christians, and, and, and even that phraseology is, is probably up for discussion, while the best of Christians remain in this life only partially sanctified, with many sins and character defects, God's intention is for our sanctification to be brought to completion. That's the, the beauty of what he says here when he says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. The, the Greek word for completely is a compound of two words, one that means whole or entire, the, the whole thing, and the other that means complete or finished. And so he is capturing in this, this adverb that God, may he sanctify you to the very end. May he be transforming you and transform you to the very end and to the very mark with which he has determined, which is the image of Christ. May he never stop sanctifying you. May he take it to the end and to the finishing point where you are now transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. 
you will finish. That's why the NIV translates this as, and, and I think it's, it's a nice way of saying it, as sanctify you through and through. May he sanctify you all the way to the end completely so that you stand in the image of Christ. We will, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, you will reach the finish line fully sanctified. That is the hope of this passage. You will reach the finish line fully sanctified. When we sing, as we were singing earlier, about those times when we stand before our God and, and we look forward to those times when we are in heaven, it's hard for us to fathom this. We will be separated from sin there will be no more residual sin. There will be no more temptation, no more yielding. We will stand fully sanctified and changed. Have you ever competed in any kind of athletic event and you've, you've not only finished first, but you finished well and you were fully spent when it was all done? Not, not a whole lot of us have had that experience. I've, I use the term run loosely. I've run some 5Ks and, and I know that even though I am fully spent, I have not done as well as I could do because if I had tried training a little bit and running a little bit prior to that, maybe I could run a little bit better, but, but I know that I haven't practiced, and so I know that, yes, I'm spent, but I could probably do better here. The image here is of coming to the end fully in the image of Christ, standing before our judge and creator as having been redeemed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We will not be incomplete we will not be falling short. We will stand before him, ultimately sanctified through and through. And what Paul is doing here by recording this prayer is not only God's spirit for you and I, but Paul specifically for the Thessalonians to say, you have hope. I know that this is discouraging. I know there are times when the pressure of persecution wears on you and your response is just not always sweet, good words like we've just been talking about. I know that, and I want you to know that God is at work in this, and he will sanctify you completely. And then he says, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God sanctify you completely and may he preserve you fully. Side note on this. A pastime for a lot of theologians is debating whether man is made up of two parts or three. Whether he is body and soul or body and soul and spirit. And, and even though this is the only place we see this sort of language in the New Testament, this is one of the places that some will say, well, see, it's, it's actually three parts. Here's, here's what we know. The New Testament is very clear that we are two-parted beings for sure that we are flesh, that we are bodies of flesh, and that there is that inner man, variously described as the heart, the spirit, the inner being, the inner self, the soul, whatever it might be. This passage is not meant to be a lesson in anthropology. Uh, Paul here is not seeking to define specifically the parts of man, just as Jesus is not seeking to define the inner man when he says that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's not saying, okay, so all four parts of who you are. He's saying incompleteness. And that, that's what Paul's emphasizing here, that what we should get from this is that God would preserve his people blameless in their entirety that he will even give to us at the resurrection new bodies so that even the body ultimately 
is, is made in a way that it is preserved from blame. And so this is, again, just a, a, a statement of a prayer of encouragement toward the end. God is assuring you that, that you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, when you stand before him, no accusation will stick. That's the essence of blameless. That, that, that everything we have in our lives that we can point to, all of the failures, all of the sins, all of the disobedience that we know that when we stand before our judge and creator, he says, may you stand before him blameless. May God preserve you completely so that in that moment there will not be this awful sense that Isaiah felt of woe is me, I am ruined, I cannot stand before God. In that moment there will be the glorious experience of the redemption of Christ that we will be praising him for, that we now stand before him as blameless as people who have been dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Paul had already praised God for his work in Thessalonica. He enabled the Thessalonians to read God's word, to embrace it as what it is, to respond to it. He had praised God for how they were growing in faith and love and hope, but they were not yet perfect. And so his prayer is, may God preserve you to that very end, to that day when you stand before your Savior, that you will be blameless lest there be any doubt, lest there be anyone who at the end of that prayer says, how can this be? I know my life. I, I, this would take a miracle. You're right, this would. That's exactly his point, and that's why he adds what he does in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is not depending on us this complete sanctification, this preserved blameless, ultimately is not on whether we can do it, whether or not we can reach the finish line, whether or not we can be getting to that place of sinlessness. We, we should be striving to obey and to please God, but this complete sanctification and this preservation as blameless is the work of God through Jesus Christ, and it is what he will do in us, and he is the one that assures us, and he even roots it back not only in his faithfulness, but when he says, he who calls you is faithful. He didn't, he didn't initially call you into his family to sort of leave you partway along the way. His call is effective. He calls you to be his own with the end that you will ultimately be glorified before him. And so even at, at the very beginning of his work to you, there's, there's where the foundation is, that he is calling you not to just repent and trust in him, but he is calling you to his ultimate goal, which is to stand before him transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. If this is in any way making you think, hey, I've read this somewhere before, like maybe Philippians 2, I've read something like this, then you're exactly right. This is Paul just building this theology out where he says in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. So you believers work for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As believers, we are called to and we are responsible to live obediently. None of this is ever given to us to use as an excuse. We are to actively strive to put sin to death. That is the presence of his spirit in our lives to convict us and to enable us to respond to his word and to respond accordingly. But we do so with the full assurance 
that the ultimate accomplishment of all this rests fully in the God who is faithful, that he will see us through to the finish and to complete preservation and complete sanctification. That doesn't erase the struggle with sin. That doesn't stop the wearing out of the body. The effects of sin still go on. We still age. We still deteriorate. And so long as the Lord tarries, it doesn't ward off the possibility of sickness and death for us. We are still living in a fallen world as a fallen people who have been redeemed. But as Benjamin Warfield used to teach his theology classes a century ago back in Princeton, the weariness of the struggle is illuminated by hope. Yes, it's, it's a struggle, and yes, it, it's wearisome, but we should never lose sight of the light of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is not merely a gospel of salvation for eternity, but is also of the assurance that he is rescuing us and he is transforming us and he who called us is faithful and he will do it. He will bring us into his presence. We have this struggle and that's why at the end of this, Paul says, and we have this hope. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 caps this long section of instruction, all with the assurance that, listen, when God saved you, God saw it all the way through to the end. And God determined not only that he would save you, but that he would cleanse you and change you and glorify you one day. God sees you now as complete, standing before his son, Jesus Christ, standing before the judge of all the earth. He has pledged to do this. He has given his word that he will do this. And therefore, he says, I am praying that you would know this and that you would know that God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being faithful. Thank you as, as, as human beings, we can all look at countless times when we have started things that we have not finished, when we have committed things that we could things we have not followed through. Lord, we, uh, we, can, we can list off the times that we have set out with the best of intentions and not finished the course. Thank you, Father, that you are perfect in faithfulness. Thank you that when you set out to save a people for yourself, it would be a people who would be called, who would be justified, who would be glorified, who would ultimately be a people who would stand for eternity before you in heaven based on your good work and grace and the finished work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for being faithful to people who struggle with faithfulness. Thank you for showing yourself true and for your word being that which we can rest our lives and our hope in. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone listening to this this morning or listening at some point later who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, who has not come to the place of believing that Jesus died for their sin and rose again to offer them life and hope, Lord, today would you open their eyes? Would you bring them to yourself? Would you cause them to, to see Jesus in his glory and to believe in him as Savior? And would you rescue them from their sin? And Father, we who are, we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, help us this week now to, 
to go out of here glad and thankful and anticipating when we are reunited with our brothers and sisters in glory, mostly when we are standing before you transformed. And in the meantime, help us to be a people who pray for one another, who love one another deeply, who show affection to one another, who meditate on your word together, who bask in your grace together, and who are gracious toward one another. Help us by your Spirit's enabling to do these things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.